Thank you, Pastor Chad, for the prayer supplication. I invite you this morning to turn in, first, in your Bibles to 1 Peter. We'll be looking at chapter 4. We'll be picking up where we left off um, in our previous message from this wonderful epistle. And as you're turning over to chapter 4 and picking up there in verse 12, I couldn't help but be drawn back to chapter 2, verse 9, where the Apostle Peter is informing those early believers there in first century uh, Palestine, if you will, uh, or even actually into Asia Minor. Uh, he's reminded them, he said, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, God's own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the light. Wow. Um, no doubt about it, Peter lays it right there before us. We, we are somebody. I mean, don't get all puffed up at pride and everything. And, but, but the fact is, just by virtue of who you are in Christ, you are children of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. You're a holy, chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And yet, sometimes we don't really act like that. We don't live like that. We don't think like that. Because sometimes we're so preoccupied with being citizens of North Carolina or citizens of America that we'll lose sight of the most important thing about us. The greatest attribute that we have and credit uh, to us is that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And we ought to live like that. God expects us to live like his people, like we are citizens of a foreign dominion. And that is the heavenly dominion. And, and I've, I've challenged you to think about this very fact. We must rise above the entanglements of our earthly residency in order to fully embrace our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. There are things, there are people, there are obligations and commitments and experiences and possessions and oh, and so many things. And they're good things. Don't get me wrong. But just understand that in God's, from God's perspective and from the eternal perspective, they're not the best thing. So don't lose sight of the best thing being caught up and entangled in good things. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. Praise the Lord. And so Paul, uh, Peter is writing a letter that is so timely to Christians in first century times and yet a letter that I really believe will become increasingly more pertinent to believers in the 21st century as we move forward. It, it, the time in the Peter's letter somewhere around AD 64, AD 65 very close to the time of the burning of Rome and we'll talk about that maybe later but the fact is, increasingly, first century Christians are becoming targets of slander and ostracism and just outright persecution. We, we saw that, you know, Peter is encouraging Christians earlier in this chapter, in chapter 4. He says in verse 4, he says, in regard to these, talk about people that we, uh, these Christians are acquainted with. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation 
In other words, in, in, they, these people who were your friends and your acquaintances and, and, and folks that you knew, and all of a sudden now you're radically transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're not the same person. You're not enjoying running in this, this euphoric stampede of pleasure that they're caught up in. They don't know. They can't understand you because you're not drinking with them. You're not reveling out there with them. You're not going out there and, and, and raising cane and getting caught up in all kinds of sensuality and sinful immorality and, 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 and stooping down to some of the decadent things that people... Are, you're not doing the things that you used to do with them and they're thinking, good gracious, something has happened. We don't understand you. And they begin to resent you. And they began to spread rumors about you. And they began to distance themselves from you. You know, today Bible-believing moral Christians who speak out against the cultural proponents of the sexual revolution that is overrunning our society like a diabolical tsunami. When moral, Bible-believing Christians dare to speak out against that movement, they, we find ourselves increasingly more and more under attack by those radical, uh, godless, immoral individuals, many of them members of the radical LBGT crowd and then their associates. Christians are targeted now. If you believe in the Bible and you stand for what the scripture teaches and you dare to say this is sin, dear friend, you're going to be labeled quickly. You're going to be labeled as a hater. You're going to be labeled as somebody that's, quote, intolerant. And so, you know, it's almost eerie as I read these words, these divinely inspired words of the Apostle Peter, who, by the way, is no stranger to suffering, <laughs> he's no stranger to persecution. If anybody's qualified to write to other Christians about surviving through times of trials and hardship and persecution and ostracism, let me tell you something, the Apostle Peter certainly is credited in that area. But these words that he's writing to those first century Christians, I believe it won't be too long that more and more Christians in the 21st century Christian Christendom will begin to say, wow, that is so prophetic because we ourselves now find ourselves walking arm length with Christians 2,000 years ago. So as we look at chapter 4, verse 12, Peter begins with a term of endearment, beloved. I guess I need to use that term when I'm preaching and addressing the congregation more. It sounds so warm and, 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 you know, loving, you know, beloved. But, you know, I thought about an, uh, an episode in Peter's life after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And Peter decided, surely the, the Lord doesn't have anything to do with me anymore. I've already denied him three times, so I'm sure I'm out, I'm out of his scheme. And lo and behold, there was Jesus when Peter went fishing on the seashore of the Sea of Galilee. And, and of course, you know, Peter and his friends didn't have any luck fishing. Sounds like me. And, and so, you know, Jesus standing on the lake shore has got a fire. He's got a cooking breakfast for them. Beckons them in. But, but 
reason I'm saying this, do you remember how Jesus so wisely and lovingly recommissioned this shamed disciple? He asked him three times, didn't he? Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And again, the Lord asked him again, do, do, you know, do you love me? Well, he told him, feed my sheep. Don't forget that. Feed my sheep. And, and again, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. Talking about Christians, talking about the church. And then a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Three times to coincide with the three denials. Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Fast forward. Peter's writing to the sheep. He's writing to the members of the body of Christ. <laughs> He's writing to followers of Christ. And Jesus has told him three times, feed, tend, care for Peter, I'm recommissioning you. You'll be a leader, a guide for my, a shepherd for my people. So why wouldn't Peter, when he begins to write, say, Beloved? I believe Peter developed such a deep love for the people of God because he never forgot that conversation on the lake shore that morning when Jesus recommissioned him. If there was anybody that was going to rise to the occasion to stand for the church and to defend the church and to guide the people of God, you better believe it. It was good old Simon Peter because Jesus had given him a second chance. And what he had to do was love and nurture and guide the church. And we see that coming in Peter's writing. Beloved, in verse 12, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Christians, when you find yourself going through difficulties and hardships, because you choose to stand for Christ, you choose to identify with Jesus Christ, and suddenly people don't like you, and they're talking about you, and they cut you out of their social life, or you miss a promotion or suffer in some other way. Don't be shocked. Because God allows us to go through this. He says, don't think it's strange concerning fire. Listen, fiery trials are part of God's plan for his people. I mean, it goes back in the Old Testament. The last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi. God speaking through Malachi in chapter 3 of Malachi tells about the, the coming of the Messiah. He's even talking about the forerunner of the Messiah, speaking of John the Baptist. But just listen to what he says in those first three verses in chapter 3 of Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Now listen to what he says. For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. 
He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Do you think that God hesitates to send trials and hardships and even persecution to purify his people? When he's already told us that was a part of the plan. Followers of Christ must always expect times of testing. Jesus had forewarned his disciples repeatedly, such as in John 16, 33. He says, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus didn't spring a surprise on them. He didn't withhold that information. He didn't say, fellas, listen, you follow me and be a, be a part of my following and be a part of the church and everything's going to go great. You want to live the good life, brothers? You just get on board. Sounds like some big preacher in our Coliseum down in Texas, doesn't it? But anyway, the apostles clearly passed along that same warning, such as in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 3, verse 4, when the apostle Paul says, For in fact, we told you that we, we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. In 2 Timothy, he wrote to Timothy, his protege, and he says, Paul is writing and saying, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Do you remember when Jesus encountered the apostle Paul and struck him blind and, 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 and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then there was poor Paul, blind as a bat. His friends had deserted him. He's there in Damascus. He doesn't know what in the world is going to happen next. Only thing he knows is he's had an encounter with the living, resurrected Savior who he was persecuting. And the Lord sent Ananias and said, you go to Paul, here's the address. You go to my servant and you tell him I'm a, I have a mission for him. And his mission is to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And by the way, tell him it is a mission of suffering. You will suffer, Paul. And did Paul suffer? <laughs> you go back and read 2 Corinthians as he enumerates all the things that God allowed. Why did God allow Paul to suffer so many imprisonments and beatings and unjust accusations of being stoned to death and, and shipwrecked and, and, and bitten by a poisonous viper and eventually beheaded? Didn't God like Paul? <laughs> now, God didn't like Paul. He loved him. And he sent trials and hardships to refine Paul to, to a spiritual purity where he could be used as a powerful instrument of the gospel. Man, isn't God amazing? To take somebody like Saul of Tarsus and to purge him and purify him and make him a, a dynamo for the gospel. There's nobody... Except for the Lord Jesus Christ has walked on the face of this earth that has so impacted lost humanity like the Apostle Paul. Wow! And guess what? God allows Christians to go through these times of testing and trials because he's wanting to do the same thing to us. Christians grow to appreciate God's purifying presence. You say, hold on, preacher. I'm not one for pain. 
And, and I'll confess, I don't like pain, okay? I mean, you know, just the thought that I, you know, my dentist appointment is around the corner. You know, I start having nightmares, you know? I see my dentist over me with this wicked smile on his face with a jackhammer. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't stand pain. So why, why am I going to appreciate painful purging and purification except that the fact that I know that my God who knows me better than anyone, who loves me more than anyone possibly could, chooses to allow Charlie Martin and each of you who call Jesus Christ your Savior and you follow him. Listen, fiery trials prove the genuineness of one's faith. Fiery trials are for a purpose. You know, Jesus was teaching back in Matthew chapter 13 the, the parable of the sower. Maybe think about, you know, the sower sowing the seeds of the gospel and it lands on different types of soils and what have you. I, I need to have a talk with our yard people that are watching over and taking care of our yards because they got a little bit happy with seed, grass seeds last fall. I, and I appreciate the fact they, they had pity on me. They looked at my yard and said, oh man, all, the, all my neighbors have got these plush golf course-like yards and here's mine, you know, weed here. Weed. Anyway, they got a little bit happy. With grass seed. I got grass growing not only in my yard, but all up in my flower beds and everywhere. I think there's grass growing in my mailbox. But, but their seeds are falling all over the place. But Jesus taught a powerful principle in this parable in chapter 13 of Matthew. And let me just share, talking about the seed. He said, in verse 5, chapter 13 of Matthew, Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth. And they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. You know what Jesus is teaching us there? The gospel fell upon some people who really didn't have faith. They had no substance to them. No, no, no earth, if you will. No good soil. Shallow. And they give this false impression like, oh yeah, you know, I'm a Christian. I mean, see, my dad's a farmer and I remember plenty of times him sowing oaks or sowing wheat. And, you know, those broadcasters, particularly the old-fashioned Sam, you may remember where they cranked that handle and it would just spin and, you know, the man be walking and spinning those seeds. And they, you know, my dad didn't say, oh no, I got one outside the field. <laughs> He's too busy. He's just gone and he's walking the edge of the, of the field. Some of the seeds would get out there on the road. The road is packed down, soil, rocks in it. And, and sure enough, after a good rain, you'd see some of the first wheat to come up would be right there in the road, not out in the field. I mean, they'd spring up and they look pretty good. It looked like they're off to a good start. But about a couple of weeks after we get one of those hot North Carolina July days and that sun is baking down on it and those roots, those little roots from those seeds in that hard, rocky path, they would start trying to go. They say, water, water. You could almost hear them, you know. And after a day or two, they withered out. They, they really, there's no substance to them. You know, there are people that are in churches and religious gatherings around, you know, they get all emotional and excited and, oh, hallelujah! You know, they're the, usually the loudest and they're the ones that make the biggest noise about what they're going to do for Jesus and on and on. A couple of weeks, they're gone. 
You know, they had some hard times, stumbled upon some hard times, you know, mentioned that they were Christian and some of the friends started, you know, dishing them or whatever. And they decided, you know, I, I, I don't want this. They're gone. Fiery trials, just like the scorching summer sun on that, those wheat plants, the, the fiery trials that God allows to come upon the body of Christ sometimes weeds out. It reveals the genuineness of one's faith. Fiery trials also promote spiritual maturity. We know old James. I don't think Martin Luther had a lot of love for James. Did he? I mean, I, I, that wasn't his favorite writer, was it? <laughs> Too practical. But James is just one of those. You know, say you got faith, show me your works. No works, Mark, you're out. <laughs> show me your faith. With your works and you got my attention. But, but James is saying something similar to what Peter's saying in, in James chapter 1 verse 2. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. James says, you, you, you'll have those fiery trials. You will encounter resistance. You will encounter misunderstandings. You will encounter anger. Listen, but it's good for you. It strengthens your faith. It toughens you as a follower of Christ. It prepares you to get on out there and do the great work. Let me tell you something, folks. Newsflash. The church is not a religious country club. Nor is the Christian life a joy ride. That's profound. Y'all ought to be seriously writing that down. Boy, you ought to hear what our preacher said today in church. <laughs> I don't blame you. I forgot it from the time I did. But anyway, it, it's true. It's true. God didn't call you out of the wickedness and depravity of sin and the darkness into the light and, and shed his blood for your sins and call you to himself so that you could ride comfortably along till you get to heaven. Why do you think Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if any man come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his what? Cross. Excuse me? <laughs> Lord, are you sure you got that right? Take up a cross. I thought you meant take up something comfortable. Take up a, one of those my pillows. How many of y'all have one of those things? <laughs> Hallelujah. Best invention. Man, I'm sleeping like a baby now. But, you know, <laughs> my son's back there sweating BBs, saying my dad's had a stroke. But anyway. <laughs> He would say, take up your cushions and your my pillow. Take up your cross. The people in the first century understood what a cross was. It meant suffering. It meant pain. It meant death. And follow me. Jesus said, take up your cross daily. You got trials coming at you, folks. They don't just come every leap year. It'd be nice, wouldn't it? If God said, tell you what, I'm going to let y'all suffer, but I'll just hold it off to every leap year. Man, what are you talking about? I'd stay in bed, cover my head, lock the doors. I wouldn't even go out for the whole year. But anyway, the fact is, every day you get up, 
If you follow Christ, if you are committed to represent the kingdom of God, you can just about bank that the devil, the demons that he's controlling, this wicked, sinful, fallen world, and if that's not good enough, you get out of bed with your flesh. How many of y'all get out of bed with your flesh? <laughs> so he said, uh, well, I'm, I, I'm not talking about your physical body, okay? I'm talking about your fallen flesh nature. I like to start my day with prayer. As soon as my feet swing around the bed, you know, hit the floor, I like to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for watching over me and watching over my family and bringing us through the night. Thank you for the rest you've given me. And Lord, I want to commit myself to, to, you know, to know you better today, to love you better today, to serve you. I mean, that's just automatic. But do you understand that your flesh can tackle you before you get to the bathroom? You know, to look at the mirror and see how gorgeous you are. Listen, it doesn't take long. You'll have a trial. You can have the best intentions going into a day. And let me tell you something, resistance will come. But the trials are for our benefit. I need to move along. I thought I'd get an amen there. God provides reasons for rejoicing in suffering. Get out of here, preacher. What are you talking about? Suffer and, and, and be joyful? Look at verse 13. Peter says it, but rejoice to the extent that you partake, you partake in Christ's suffering, that when he that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. Y'all understand what that term in the scripture, blessed? In the Beatitudes, Jesus said, you know, blessed are those, you know, the poor in spirit and those who hunger for righteousness. Listen, blessed means happy. And Peter's saying, happy are you for the spirit of the glory of glory of God rest upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, talking about the world. But on your part, he is glorified. The world can't do anything but blaspheme God. I mean, it's just their nature. They're not going to say anything good about the Lord. They're not going to honor the Lord. Don't you get bent out of shape or act all shocked and surprised if, if some lost person on television or, or, or out there in the street, you know, talks derogatorily about the Lord Jesus or makes fun of Christians or the church? Hey, they're just doing what they normally do. That's their nature. They're going to be blaspheming God. But, but the same God, He is glorified when you and I face our trials and rejoice. Let me just give you a quick example because as you remember from our time in the book of Acts in chapter 5 from the apostle Peter, in fact, all the, all the apostles, you know, they're out there preaching the, 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 the good news of the gospel and telling about Jesus Christ and the, of course the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders are just as mad as fire. Good gracious, they're just seeing red. In chapter 5, in verse 41, now they have arrested the, the, the disciples, all the apostles, they've arrested them, put them in jail. God said, nah, Sends an angel. <laughs> those, those, those Jerusalem jailers must have got tired of having somebody, a Christian in jail, and then God sends an angel, bam, springs them. All of them, not just one or two, all of them, the whole crowd, get out. Where do they go? Go back to the temple, start preaching. Just like, you know, so the Sanhedrin says, hey, bring those apostles up here that we got. Let's, let's see if we can't torture them and do something to them. You know, they're not there. What do you mean? They're not there. The guard says, no, we saw them over at the temple. They're already preaching. It's early morning. <laughs> go get them. Brings them back, threatens them. 
And this is the same crowd that killed, I mean, you know, the Lord Jesus, that arranged the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. But I love verse 41 because after they, the Sanhedrin had warned the apostles and beaten them, by the way, just for good measure. They didn't go out and say, doggone it, I'm going to get a lawyer. I'm going to sue somebody. <laughs> Look, hey, how, how bad are my whelps here? Did they, you got beat worse than I did, didn't you, poor brother? <laughs> I mean, they didn't go out and say, oh, poor us. Look at verse 41. Or listen to verse 41. So they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing. Wouldn't I blow your mind as a parent or a grandparent if you're one of those that dare to discipline your grandchildren? Wouldn't it just blow your mind if, you know, your child did something really deserving of a whooping? And you administered rightful punishment. And the child turned around and said, Hallelujah. Thank you, Daddy. Oh, man, that was good. Let's do it again sometime. <laughs> nah, I never did, kids. I never did. And I doubt you will. But God's children rejoice when we suffer for Christ. As, as, the, as the apostles did, our fellowship with Christ in righteous suffering is what makes the difference. The apostle Paul, if I could take you back to Philippians, there in chapter 3. The apostle Paul, and as I said, Paul is no stranger to this matter of, of suffering. Chapter 3, verse 8. Your fingers are fiercely turning pages or you're hitting buttons on your electronic device. <laughs> Peter said, I mean, Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are, are, are noble, whatever things are just. And, and, um, or let me, let me just jump on over. Paul says, <clears throat> in chapter, I'm sorry, in chapter 3, verse 8, I was reading in verse 4, bifocals. Verse 4. Three verse eight, chapter 3, verse 8. But indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Savior, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is from through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul says, all the things that I would have been proud of, all the, the, the accomplishments that I have, Paul says, everything that the world might give to me as credit, Paul says, it's rubbish. I count it a privilege that I might suffer along with Christ. And, and we must be willing to suffer. Jesus taught us that. As I mentioned in the Beatitudes. In that great sermon on the mount. And Jesus is teaching in chapter 5 of, of Matthew. And he says in verse 10. Matthew chapter 5 verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted. For righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught us. That when we suffer for him. When we suffer for his sake when we suffer for the kingdom of God 
we are blessed. And we reveal our identity with Him in our suffering. When you suffer for Christ, you are telling people, you are showing people who you are and what you belong to. Jesus said in John 15, 20 and 21, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted you, or if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. When you are persecuted for the cause of Christ, let me tell you something, that tells people who you really are. And any Christian or person calling themselves a Christian who resists suffering for the Lord almost reveals right away they're not truly a child of God. And not only that, not only as we, as God's people, you know, we have fellowship with Christ. You never are we closer to the Lord than when we are suffering for Him. Do you get that? Never are we closer to the Lord than when He allows us to suffer for Him. And I think about our brothers and sisters persecuted Christians in other parts of the world. Sure, they're suffering and sure they've lost so much and sometimes even their very lives. But let me tell you something. You're talking about people who are tight with the Lord. They understand that the reason they're suffering is not because they're criminals. The reason they're suffering is because they are faithful servants of the Lord. So we enjoy that, that fellowship with the Lord. But, but look what he says there in verse 14 in, in 1 Peter 4. If you, are if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory, that's the Holy Spirit, and of God rest upon you. I like that. I like that. We enjoy the Lord's presence with us now and at His return. When we're insulted because of Jesus, when people make fun of you or ostracize you or they attack you verbally because of your faith in Christ and your stance for the Lord and the Word of God. Listen, when we're insulted because of Christ, His Spirit is with you. God's Holy Spirit, that's what Peter says, He rests on you. And literally, in, in the original language, when Peter says that, he's saying that the Spirit of God in those times of trial, He gives relief. He gives refreshment. You may be hurting on the outside. You may be wounded emotionally, but the Spirit of God who dwells in you is ministering to you, relieving you, refreshing you. He rests on you. And that's what it means. And not only that, we have the joy as Peter is talking about back here in 1 Peter chapter 4. He talks about in verse 13, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. You know the ones who are going to be the the most eager to greet the Lord when he, when he returns, when He comes in His second coming, is going to be the Christians who have suffered for Him. It's going to be the Christians who have been persecuted. 
It's going to be the Christians who have been faithful in the fiery trials and have, have had cost them so much. Listen, the ones that will be rejoicing the greatest at his glorious appearing will be those who have suffered for the cause of Christ. And then finally, as we look at chapter 4, look at verse 15. Peter goes on to say, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. What's Peter saying? Listen, when, when we suffer, let's make sure we're suffering for the right reason. I think it's interesting that Peter singles out some of the, the worst crimes. He says it, you know, in verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer. You understand that, that you, you commit a crime, you will suffer. You sin, you'll suffer the consequences of that sin. And he said, listen, don't, don't revel in the fact that you're suffering because you've done wrong as a murderer or a thief. And those were some of the, maybe the highest crimes that a person commit. But he didn't stop there. As, as an evildoer. Someone is just up to mischief. No good. But then he doesn't stop there. He goes from the capital crimes all the way down to those personal. And he touches on maybe some of us. He says, don't even be caught suffering because you're a busybody. In other words, a meddler into other people's affairs. And Paul has a lot to say about those kinds of people. In 2 Thessalonians, he chastises some of those believers who looking for the second coming of Christ and giving up their jobs and all they're doing is walking around, mooching off of people, meddling into people's, you know, getting involved in other people's business. They're, they're messing with the government, you know, and, and trying to interfere with the process of government. And, and listen, Paul says, just go back to work. And get involved in life. And stop this meddling. So Peter says, don't, don't be caught suffering because you're a, a busybody or a meddler. Look at verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Don't ever be ashamed if you're singled out because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, it may be embarrassing. You know, you walk into the office and you get ready to start your job and, you know, you hear everybody snickering and then the boss man, you know, your supervisor, he's leaned up against the coffee machine or the water fountain. Well, well, if it isn't our little Jesus freak coming back to work. Got your big old family Bible with you today, bro? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. People may single you out in the classroom. I think about some of our college students who dare to stand for their faith in the midst of these wicked and, and, and secular-minded professors and they're being ostracized and, and, and humiliated. Listen, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed ever when you suffer as a Christian. That's what Peter says there. But let him glorify God in this matter. In verse 17, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Isn't that interesting? Peter says, God's ready to judge. And you understand when he says the house of God, he's talking about the church. He's talking about Christians. We're not exempt. And some of the judgment of God may be these fiery trials that he's sending just to purify us and to reveal our true nature, to expose who we really are. And sometimes these trials that 
the Lord sends along is to straighten us out. But the fact is, we will be judged in this life, but in heaven. We know that we will stand. When you die, leave this world, or we're raptured, and we stand before the Lord, the scripture tells us we will be judged. Every believer will be judged. Not in regards to salvation, because our salvation is secure in the blood of Christ. But the Lord will judge us in terms of our rewards. Based on our faithfulness to serve Him, to stand for Him, to witness for Him, to suffer for Him if need be. Listen, we will be rewarded. That's what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians about our works. Either going, th going through the fire. And if they're truly silver and gold, they'll come out purified and precious. But if all your stuff that you've been doing down here and you call it being a Christian is all about you and your little kingdom, he says it's like wood and stubble. It's, poof, it goes up. You get no rewards for that. And so, yeah, we, we, he said, listen, God starts with his house. The first judgment in God's scheme of eschatology is he judges the church. Gets that out of the way. And then, of course, we know in Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne of judgment is where the lost, those who have rejected Christ, are judged. And listen to the contrast that you see Peter pitching in these final verses of chapter 4. He says, for the time has come, in verse 17, for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? And he quotes out of Proverbs eleven thirty one: If the righteous are, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, whew, if we just get by, pardon the expression, by the grace of God, you don't have anything to add to the grace of God. Do you understand that? You don't, you don't go into heaven and say, well, yeah, 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 I got, I got the, you know, the redemptive blood of Christ and, and the grace of God, but then I've got all these wonderful things that I did and I've got all the accolades of praise that I had and all the positions that I had and all the years that I served in, in, in missions trips and all, all those years that I taught. You know, in, now, that stuff, mm, <laughs> you, you and I only get in by the bare simple grace of God. If the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? What chance do they have? What awaits those who dare to turn up their nose to the Son of God? What will be their chances in facing judgment? When it's all said and done, Jesus, Matthew chapter 13, verse 41, gives us a picture of what awaits those who are outside of the family of God, who are rebellious sinners. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will gather out of the kingdom all things that offend. He's talking about the end of time. And those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. 
Then he goes into verse 43, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. You see the contrast that Peter's painting? You see the contrast that Jesus is portraying? Jesus goes on in chapter 13, in that apocalyptic chapter of Matthew's gospel, verse 49. He says, so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and separate the wicked from the just and cast them into the furnace. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Listen, you talking about torment and suffering? That's what Jesus is saying awaits those. So, Peter is saying, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Look at verse, 30, uh, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a friend our faithful creator. Yes, we will suffer. There are times of trials and fiery trials and, and hardships. But the fact is we know that through those times the Lord is working to purify us, to purge us, to strengthen us, to make us stronger. It's for our benefit. It's for His glory. I pray that God will encourage you no matter what you face. When you choose to stand for the Lord and you choose to be faithful to His Word and you choose to be a faithful witness, I pray that God will encourage you through the words of the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle James, and all of those who've written to us telling us this is a glorious life, the Christian life. It is an eternal life. It is the it is the abundant life. But it is not a life without pain. It is not a life without hardship. It is not a life without trials. And we can trust in the Lord. That just as He leads us into the trials. He will bring us through. And He will reward us. According to His perfect will. Let's bow for a moment. And just let God's Spirit. Do His work to speak into us. You may be in the midst of a trial. You may be going through a time of difficulty and hardship because your faith has led you to take a stand in your family, in your school, on, in your, on your job, out in your neighborhood. Maybe you went out to, tr to try to share Christ with somebody and had really good intentions and had a good heart about it. And, and you wanted to share with somebody and they gave you a blistering verbal attack and rebuked you. And you, you feel the wounds of that. Rejoice. Blessed are you. When we suffer with Christ. In fellowship with Christ. 